So we have, for the last several weeks, um, since the week after Easter, we have been looking at the aftermath of all <clears throat> of all of the uh, Easter events. That is, what took place um, after Jesus rose and then left the scene and left it to his followers, um, which... Um, if any of you are in a position where you are a supervisor or a boss, um, you know how a lot of times leaving something to your followers goes. <laughs> yeah, but somehow, somehow they pulled it off and they got the message of Jesus out of first century Jerusalem. And now here we are thousands of years later and we're sitting here talking about it and we're following the person of Jesus. And so we've been looking the last several weeks at this story and exactly what happened and how we still very much have a role to play within all of it. And, and I, I encourage you, because um, we are just hitting a couple tiny little highlights of the story, I would encourage you to go and read um, the book of Acts for yourself because it is fascinating, fascinating story. But so far what we've hit is day one of the church, 3,000 people decide to join the movement in which we spent a lot of time that week talking about how our, our thought or idea a lot of times when the word church pops into our, my mind, our mind is the building or the institution, um, but it's not that at all. Um, it was a movement around the name of Jesus based purely on his resurrection. Um, then we looked the next week at the first recorded prayer of the church, which was fascinating what they prayed for, especially considering the circumstances um, that they found themselves in the middle of. Um, and their prayers had nothing to do with safety or prosperity or blessings. It had to do with help us spread the word. They were in the midst of persecution. Their two main guys were possibly um, getting ready to be killed. And their prayer was not for any of the stuff that we would pray for, but it was for give us boldness to spread the message. And then, and then we saw the boldness that the disciples had after they got drugged before basically the, uh, the lawyers of the, uh, the religious leaders who were tired of them speaking in that name. And uh, the, they were beaten and not just beaten like, oh, they got beat up a little bit. I mean, like beaten, like for a lot of people, they don't survive this type of beating just for talking about Jesus. And their reaction was, we're going to go talk about Jesus. And there was a delicate balance that existed during this time period um, within Jerusalem. This balance that existed between Rome and Jerusalem. And more specifically, Rome and the, and the religious leaders within Jerusalem. Because if the religious leaders were able to just keep the peace and keep the tax money flowing to Rome, then the Romans pretty much left them alone and didn't care what they did. As long as it was peaceful and they were getting their money, you guys can do what you want. But now there was this undercurrent within the culture and within the society at this time. There, there, there was this movement and this kind of movement was kind of both um, in some elements against um, Rome because Rome was the one that, that actually crucified um, Jesus, kind of their leader, and against the Jewish establishment because the Jewish leaders were the ones who delivered him and kind of manipulated the whole thing into his crucifixion. And they were speaking out against the current guys who were trying to lead this idea and this movement. And, and now the religious leaders, they found themselves in a situation where now instead of like, you know, a dozen main guys and maybe like a few hundred people that kind of bought into Jesus and this whole idea and what he had done. Now within the streets of Jerusalem, there were six to 8,000 people running around saying, we believe in this resurrected Jesus. 
And so consequently, because of this, persecution broke out. And here's where we left the story off last week. We left the story off with the disciples being flogged and they responded like this. The apostles, they left the Sanhedrin, which was the group of religious leaders that ordered them to be beaten, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So in other words, they take this beating and they didn't go and hide. And they didn't go and sit around and talk about why is God allowing these bad things to happen to good people? And they didn't sit around and say, why, why God wasn't with them and why God was allowing them to be beaten and what in the world is going on or, or why, if God was good, why are these evil things happening within the world? These aren't the conversations that they had. No, their response was to boldly proclaim the message. Well, as things continued to grow, the movement continued to spread. It started to become more and more complicated and it actually became overwhelming to the disciples because it was getting so large and there were so many people. And so within the movement, there started to develop a little bit of structure and kind of a hierarchy within the movement developed. And other leaders surfaced and began to take on leadership roles and responsibilities. And one of those men was named Stephen. And Stephen, he, he, we don't know a whole lot about Stephen. We've got, just got this little short piece in the scriptures, but he was basically appointed to oversee the feeding program. Those who were hungry, needed food, couldn't provide for themselves, didn't have for themselves. This was something that the movement was very much uh, involved with. And it was just getting too much. The apostles said, listen, we can't do that and spread the word. So Stephen, we're going to keep preaching. We're going to keep going out and talk about it. Stephen, can you run the feeding program? So since Stephen, as he began to take kind of this role and be um, looked at as kind of a little bit of a leader, since Stephen wasn't one of the 12 apostles, since he wasn't one of the main guys, the, the religious leaders saw an opportunity. They kind of saw an opening when it came to Stephen. So they had Stephen arrested. And they had Stephen brought before them and they paid witnesses to come in and tell lies about Stephen, to say that he did things that he never did, to say that he said things that he never said. And at the end of their charges against him and kind of the case that they built against him, they gave him the opportunity to give a defense. And his entire defense that he gives is written out in Acts chapter seven. And it's one of the longest messages in the Bible. And it's absolutely incredible. And in fact, I, I was talking earlier this morning with Brad and I'm like, this Acts chapter seven, if you want to figure out if you're reading the Bible right, go and read Acts chapter seven. And if you read Acts chapter seven and in your mind, the way you're reading it, it's just kind of like, okay, he's saying something about Abraham, da -da -da -da, he's saying these things, kind of history of Israel, okay, and they shouldn't do it. And it's kind of like, uh, oh, okay, well, that was good. Well, then you're reading it wrong. Because the way you should be reading it is as you read Acts chapter seven, like in your mind, it should be about as dramatic as like a few good men when Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise are going at each other. You can't handle the truth. Yes, I ordered the code. Ah! Like this is, that's what was happening. 
And if you read Acts chapter seven and Stephen's whole defense and response, if it's just kind of flat and boring and bible to you, well, you need to change the way you read it because this was exciting, dramatic stuff. And at the end of his message, and I hope that this never happens at the end of any of my messages. At the end of his messages, everybody was so worked up and everybody was so angry that they picked him up, drug him outside of the city and stoned him to death, (laughs) right? Now, pastors all the time talk about wanting people to respond to their messages. This is not what they've got in mind when they're talking about that, right? So Stephen is the first martyr of the church. And when he is killed, they wait for a minute. The the religious leaders, they kind of wait to see what Rome is going to do in response to this. And you know what Rome did? Nothing. They didn't care. I don't know if Rome even knew. And so because Rome didn't respond to the killing of this person who wasn't one of the main people, it opened the door for widespread persecution of those embracing and proclaiming the name of Jesus. And as Luke tells the story of the death of Stephen in a foreshadowing kind of way, he introduces us to the character that would make the single biggest difference when it comes to the local church movement. Here's the introduction of that character thrown in at the end of Stephen's story. So Stephen gives his defense. It's all dramatic, right? And it says, at this, his defense, at this, they, all the guys that were trying to take him down, covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. Imagine that. You're sitting before these guys who are these respected, the lawyers of the law, of the religious law, they brought you in. You give this defense back to them. They're getting angry. Everybody standing around is angry and people are so mad. They're covering their ears and screaming and charging you. I mean, I cannot imagine what that would be like to stay in there. And they drug him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of their killing of him. So here he was, Saul, giving approval of Stephen's death. And Saul is actually the Hebrew name of the person that we know as the apostle Paul. And here's what happened. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered without, were throughout Judah and Samaria, which is significant because that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. He looked at his followers before he left and he said, you are gonna be my witnesses throughout Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. And now here they were, his witnesses, his followers scattering to Judea and to Samaria. It says, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, who would later become Paul, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And the reason that it says that he went house to house is because that's where the church met. 
There was no building. There was no institution. There was no centralized location. And Saul became the face of the church killing effort. That is everyone who saw the movement of Jesus in his name as this cult offshoot of, of Judaism and this, and this illegitimate religion, like all of their angst and everything, Paul was the face of that. And he became, became the number one inquisitor, tracking down anybody and everybody who proclaimed to be a Christian. And he did all of this because we read this and we're like, oh man, well, that's really bad. Why did Paul hate God so much that he was, no, 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 no. Paul thought he was serving God. Paul was being a good Jew and wanted to just quash this, this uprising. And so he spent all of this time putting this effort to end this movement once and for all. And as you read through the story of Acts, it tells us that pretty much his efforts of arresting just hundreds of Christians, many of them being put to death, it went on pretty much unchecked for three years as he just went around. But the problem was, is that no matter how many people he arrested and no matter how many churches he shut down and no matter how many Christians he killed, the church continued to spread. And it's kind of like in my yard, every spring, I've got these ant piles that pop up, right? Anybody deal with the ant, ant hills in your yard? Oh, come on. Yes, thank you. And we go out and I look at the ant hills and I see the ant hills. And I don't do anything till Kate finally says, hey, are you going to do something about the anthills? Sure, I'll do something. And so then I go and I get those poison granules and I pour them all around the anthill, right? Because I'm going to quash this anthill. I'm going to, there's going to be no ants left. Poison, poison, death, 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 death. And then like a day later, about 10 feet that way, poof, that's what they, just right there. And then I go on that. And it's a, no matter how much death I pour out of that bag, the anthills just keep popping up. I can't stop them. And it was the same with the church. No matter how much Paul went around seeing, oh, there's a church there. I'm going to kill them, arrest them. I'm going to quash it. It just kept popping up and growing and growing and nothing he could do could stop it. But after three years of this, something absolutely incredible happens that changes the course of history when it comes to the spread of the gospel. Here, here's what happened to Saul in chapter nine. It says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and he asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which at this point in history, they wasn't called Christianity. They weren't called Christians yet. It was called the way. And the best theory amongst theologians as to why it was called the way is that several times Jesus made the statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, which on the surface of it seems like an incredibly narrow thing to say, but he said it a few times. And so the best guess is, is that people took that idea and started calling it the way. So if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he was an equal opportunity killer, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he's on his way to Damascus, going to give his letter from the high priest that says, I have the authority to do this. And he's going to find the Christians in Damascus and he's going to arrest them and take them to Jerusalem to be tried. Verse three, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, 
if the church was what the church is to most of us when we think about the church, the voice would have said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute it? It being church. It being the institution or the building or maybe the, the, the organization or the leaders that are within the organization. Why are you persecuting it? But here in the first century, as they are really beginning to understand what's going on, Jesus directly correlates Paul persecuting the church in the movement with him persecuting me. He says, me. And Saul's thinking, what do you mean, me? I'm not persecuting me, a pronoun. I'm persecuting it, a movement, right? So he responds, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, there's a huge implication there within that verse. And the implication is this. What you do to my people, you do to me. And the presence of my people on earth is the presence of me on earth. Now pause on that for just a second. Do you know what that means for us? It means that we are the representatives of Jesus on earth. Now, not necessarily individually because none of you are that good. <laughs> I'm not that good. Nobody's that good. But collectively, as the church, as the movement, we represent Jesus. And in the first century, there was a recognition that this group of people who were spreading this message represented him. Jesus keeps talking to Saul. He says, and gal, get up, go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Saul stands up, realizes that he cannot see. I mean, he was literally blinded by the light. That's where that phrase came from. Did you know that? Blinded by the light? I'm not sure if he was wrapped up like anything, but he was blinded by the light. You knew you were thinking it. You knew you were thinking it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they led him by the hand, because he couldn't see anything, into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And he just began to pray while he was there. What was going to happen to him? What would his life become? Everything he had invested himself into, not only does he now come to the understanding that he was working directly against God, but now that's who he is to everyone. His name is synonymous with death and persecution of the people of this movement. Well, meanwhile, while he's there trying to figure out what the future is for him, there's another guy in Damascus named Ananias. And this is where Ananias' story begins. Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. I just told you that. And he wasn't one of the 12 disciples, just a follower. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. And then he might not have wanted to answer because what he gets is not good news. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And, I wonder if a lot of their streets were curvy and this one just happened to be straight. And that's why they named it that. 
those are the things my mind thinks when I read stories. Okay, here we go. Where were we at? Straight Street. That's right. Go there and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And Ananias is like, wait a minute. I, I know that name. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all of the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he came here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, Ananias responds and he says, wait, 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 wait. Are you sure you've got this right? Because I'm pretty sure he's here looking for me. I don't think I need to go looking for him. But this is where the story really starts to get rich because this is where we begin to see how this message of Jesus survived the first century. Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name, which simply means to proclaim my message, my teachings, my miracles. He's my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Another big statement. This wasn't just a Jewish message. This wasn't just a message for people who are already looking for a Messiah. This wasn't just a message for people who lived in the region of the Jewish religion and were familiar with the Old Testament. No, this was a message for the entire world. And God chooses the most unlikely person in all of the first century to be the mouthpiece of this movement to the Gentile world. He says, he's my instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias hearing like, oh, he's gonna have to suffer. Okay, maybe I'm in. Maybe I can get behind this, right? So he agrees to go meet Saul. Now, can you imagine being Ananias going up and knocking on this door? knowing that on the other side of the door is the man who is responsible for murdering people that you know, the man who's responsible for dragging people out of their houses, shipping them to Jerusalem for them to never be heard from again. I mean, the number one enemy of the movement. And here you are getting ready to knock on the door and talk to him face to face. So then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And so then Ananias proceeds to explain to Saul, Saul, you've been chosen for a great work and you're gonna suffer for it. But this is significant. Your mission is to take the message of Jesus to the entire known world. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. And all of those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners of the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And then for the next dozen years or so, 
Paul essentially disappears and gets an education. And he does this by spending time with the close followers of Jesus and talking with people who were there and experienced it. Specifically spending time with Peter and with James, who were the two main dudes in getting the whole movement going. Absorbing all that he could about the life of Christ and the message. And then after about 12 or 14 years or so, he launches out to travel the world to spread this message. And during those years, uh, he, he planted a whole bunch of little churches all over the place, everywhere that he went. For about 10 or 12 years, he traveled planting these churches. And meanwhile, the, the rest of the disciples were kind of gathered in Jerusalem, trying to get that part of the church and that, that one right. While Paul hit the Mediterranean rim. And if it, it was as if he said like to all of the other prophets, it was as if he said, you guys, you just stay in Jerusalem. Get that right. I'll take all the rest. Leave it to me. I'm on it. I got it. And so he made in his lifetime three big circles around the Mediterranean, just spreading this message. And he kind of had a system and his system was like this. Everywhere that he went, he would first go to the synagogue and he would convince as many Jewish people as he possibly could that Jesus was the Messiah. And eventually every single time they would have enough of him, kick him out. Sometimes they would, sometimes they would stone him and beat him and drive him out. And then once that happened, then he would go to the Gentiles and he would say, I have great news. I have great news. God has brought an end to all of the religion that you've ever had in your lifetime because he has sent his son. And he did this in Corinth and Athens and in Ephesus. I mean, all the major cities in this part of the world, boldly proclaiming the name of Christ. Then in AD 58, which is about 25 years after the resurrection. He was taken up to Caesarea and he was arrested and he was kept in jail for two years, two years. And then eventually he told him that he was a Roman citizen and that he wanted to be tried in Rome. So he gets on a boat, makes the dangerous journey from Jerusalem to Rome, where once he gets there, he remains under house arrest for another year and a half. So here's Saul who started out doing all these bad things, has this major moment, then commits his life to spreading this message. Now all of a sudden he finds himself three and a half years out of the game sitting in jail. So while he was in Rome and under a house arrest, he started writing letters. And some of the letters you're very familiar with as they made their way into our New Testament. But he wrote letters to all of the churches that he had started in Corinth and in Ephesus and in Philippi. And we lost some of the letters. Some of the letters he wrote, we have no idea what they said because they don't exist anymore, but many we have. And after two years in Rome, he finally was released, right? And then it didn't take very long, about 66 AD, he's arrested again. And he spent about a year and a half in a dungeon in Rome. And while he was there, Nero was the emperor. And those of you who are familiar at all with Roman history knows that Nero did not have any soft spot in his heart for Christians. Then in the year 67, Paul wakes up one morning and he's led out of his cell to the outskirts of the city. 
And as he was heading out, he quickly knew exactly what was getting ready to happen. Because the area they were taking him was the place where they executed people. And without any ceremony, without any words being spoken on everything he had accomplished, without any eyewitnesses to mark the moment, he was beheaded. And his life was over. But the impact of his life was just beginning. About a year later, Nero commits suicide because he's afraid of being assassinated by his followers. And it's fascinating to watch the power structure and dynamic and how things change over time. Because Nero, who held Paul in that dungeon and had him executed. Fast forward today, people named pets Nero. And they named their children Paul. Now, as I look at all of that story that I've spent all this time telling you, and you may be thinking, well, okay, that's mildly interesting. What's the point? Here's, here's the significance of the whole story. Very, very bad things can happen to very good people. And God still sits on the throne. Unexplainable things can happen to extremely faithful people. And God is not rocked by it. It is no mystery to him. In fact, it's a part of the story from the very beginning of the church. And never in the book of Acts do we find the followers of Jesus gathered together while things are going wrong and many of them are being killed and their main guys are in jail and being beheaded. Never do they sit around and have discussions about why doesn't God love us anymore? God's lost control. We don't find any of those American types of complaints within the discussions of the early church in the book of Acts. But what we do find is that in the midst of all of that, where many of us would begin to question the validity of God at all, what we find in them is a bold commitment to the life-changing message that Jesus was the Son of God. And it was Paul's boldness in getting on a boat over and over again and visiting these pagan cultures where they were anti-everything that he was trying to teach and trying to spread and trying to establish. And that boldness in Paul is one of the primary reasons that the message of Christ ever made it out of Palestine and how we ever heard it and why we are sitting here today. That was the beginning of the global church. Now, another thing that Paul did that was extraordinarily helpful for you and me was this, is that he was able to extrapolate from Jewish culture what was needed for the Gentile world. And so because of that, he, he was able, he, he was, God was able to raise him up to help those who didn't understand or have an Old Testament background, who weren't looking for the Messiah. And he helped them to understand, okay, in this whole message and all of these things that you're hearing and the customs and the cultures that it's coming from, what is the bottom line? What is the takeaway? And he would go into these cities and he would say, even if you don't have all of the Old Testament, even if you don't have any of the Old Testament or the background of the story to Jesus, here is what you need to know. And in one of his letters to Corinthians, to the church in Corinth, 
While he was sitting in jail, he gives this synopsis. Okay, so he's in jail. This is the background. His life is coming to an end. Here's what he finds important to write. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So now he's about to define what the gospel is for us. For what I received, that is from God directly, from talking with all of the people who were a part of it from his studies, what I received, I've passed on to you as of first importance. So in other words, here's the number one thing. Here's what you need to know. If all of the rest of it is confusing and cloudy to you, know this one thing. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Some of you don't know that part, that it wasn't just a person that he appeared to here and there. And you have to take a couple people's word for it. No, he appeared to 500 at one time. And then listen to this tidbit. He's like, just to make sure you all know it's legit. Most of whom are still living. In other words, this was written in about 50 AD, 50s AD, 20, 25 years after. And he says, listen, these people who saw these events take place, I know it's difficult to get your head around, but these people are still alive. If you want, you can go for yourself and find these people and talk to these people. Though some have fallen asleep, which is the nice Bible way of saying they're dead. Then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. And then he brings it back around to his ministry. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Now, Paul, why? After everything you've done to spread the message, to plant these churches, you've sacrificed your life from the movement. Paul, why would you say after everything you've risked that you are not deserving to be called an apostle? And he tells us, because I persecuted the church of God. And then this sentence is amazing. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Isn't that powerful? He says, I don't know why God chose me. I am the least likely person to be chosen. Which is you're listening to this whole story, you might be going like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's a, okay, it's a great story. You know, you tell it with some vigor. We can tell you like the story. But what does it really mean to me? I'm glad you asked. Because here's what it means to you. First of all, no matter what you've done, you are not outside of the reach of God's grace. No matter what you've done, you are not disqualified from God's grace. No matter who tells you otherwise, no matter the feelings that those things drudge up within you, you are eligible to receive the grace of God. Here's what else this story means. Is that no matter how unlikely you believe it to be, God can use you. 
And you can come up with all the reasons why God can't use you. Well, I mean, I've done so many things in my past that I disqualify myself and I don't really have any skills or anything that he can use. And I don't even know that much about the Bible. Andy, honestly, when you read this stuff on Sunday mornings, the first time I hear a lot of this and I, you know, I don't know anything about theology or any of that stuff. And so I don't know how God can use me. None of that matters. God can. And if you make yourself available, he will use you. And then (laughs) the third one is this, is that just because bad things happen or things do not go your way, it does not mean that God has lost control or God does not care. Because within our really, really weak American Christianity, somehow we correlate God's caring and God's control with how things are going for us in life. And we are so quick to when things don't go our way or when we have a run of bad things happen to begin to question, God, why have you forsaken me? God, why are you letting this happen? God, I tried to do the best I can and now you're not here when I need you, God. And we eventually get to the point where, God, I don't even know if you're real. And if the people who were responsible for spreading the message of Jesus and getting it out of the first century would have taken that approach, we would not be here today. And we would not be following the person of Jesus. But we can take from this story, things can come against us, things cannot go our way, but God is still on the throne And his kingdom is still advancing and we have a role to play in it. That's going to take a mind shift. And that's going to take choosing to view things from a different perspective. And that's going to take time of us spending time with God and saying, God, help me to see things the way that you see things. Help me to respond to things the way that you would respond. And that's not an easy prayer to pray. Well, it may be easy to pray. It's not easy to actually do because it takes a renewing of our mind and a changing of the way that we is so ingrained in us to view things. But you're not outside of the reach of God's grace. He can use you. And no matter what's going on in your circumstances, he's still in control. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I... I, read the story of the early church and I am so inspired. Lord, I am so in awe of those early Christians who were able to understand you are bigger than circumstances and they had a role to play in your kingdom. God, I pray that this become an approach of this church that we understand you are in control no matter what's happening and we have a role to play in your kingdom. God, open our eyes to it. Lord, let us not disqualify ourselves, but understand that in your mercy and your grace, we can be used by you. Lord, I thank you for everything that has led us to being here this morning in discussing you. The lengths that you went to to establish relationship with us 
as unworthy as we were. Lord, we are grateful. We thank you for all things. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being out. Look forward to next week as we wrap up this series, The Aftermath, and have an amazing celebration at baptism where so far we have seven people being baptized. It's going to be a party. See you next week. It's